Word of God today comes from Galatians chapter 2. I will be reading verses 1 through 10. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A great frustration for many Christians today is trying to decide where to go to church. And there are many factors that go into making that decision. Some want a church that is welcoming. Some want a church that is family friendly and can provide a good nursery or programs for their children. While others just want a place to devote their time to community service. They don't really care what body they belong to as long as they can serve people. But when looking for a church, I believe that the one priority that is often neglected is whether or not the gospel is preached and believed. And because there is such lack of teaching in churches today, many people cannot discern what the true gospel is. Although this is not the only thing to look for in a church, it is the most important thing to look for in a church. And Paul gave us a good way to test the messages we hear. He said, even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. Now this requires discernment and careful consideration of what the gospel is, as Paul has laid it out for us here. He said back in 1 Corinthians 15, that the gospel that he preached, and that we are expected to receive in order to be saved, is that Christ died for our sins, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. See, the authority that tells us what the gospel is, 
is the Holy Scriptures. And the means that God uses to save souls is the preaching of that gospel found throughout the Scriptures. Once you hear that word preached, Paul promises in Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouths that Jesus is Lord, that He is Yahweh, that He is the second person of the Trinity, and believe in your hearts that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now there is much more to it than that. But that is a good summary of what the gospel is and how one is saved. But notice, in the gospel, there is no mention of your good works. There is no mention of any ritual to perform. Now, that was a problem for some. That is still a problem for many today. So, as it is often the case, false teachers crept into the Galatian churches and started sowing seeds of doubt about the authenticity of Paul's ministry because it didn't seem authentically Jewish to them. So this required a response from Paul. It required a defense. He is in the middle of defending both his ministry and the gospel. Because they didn't only deny the authenticity of Paul's ministry, others have done that before, read his letter uh, to the Philippians, but they were also denying the gospel. See, the reason they were denying Paul's ministry was because they wanted to go back to Judaism and they wanted to impose circumcision on the Gentile Christians as grounds for their salvation, which would be to depart from the gospel and from the faith altogether. So we find ourselves in the middle of his defense. And in this defense, Paul defends the freedom and truth of the gospel. He confirms that it is the one Lord who worked in him to preach the one gospel to all nations, which means there is one fellowship among the disciples with a view toward building the one final temple, the church. First, we see how he defended the freedom and truth of the gospel. Uh, but before we get there, let us backtrack to the beginning to understand where we are. In order to defend his ministry and the gospel, Paul began in chapter 1 by saying that his apostleship was not from men nor through man. Not only that, he wasn't self-appointed the way the false teachers were, but his apostleship was through Jesus Christ himself and God the Father. Then he would go on to describe how he was once an enemy of Christ and his church until his conversion. He says that he received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ as the risen and ascended Christ visited him on the road to Damascus. After this, you would assume that he would go directly to the other apostles to be received by them. But no, he went to Arabia and Damascus. Then after three years, he finally met Peter and Jesus' half-brother, James. He went on from there, preaching in the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Then after 14 years, he went to Jerusalem for a second time with Barnabas and Titus. See, Paul made four visits to Jerusalem. He went the first time to meet with Peter and James, as it is recorded 
in Acts chapter 9. Then he went a second time to grant relief to the poor, as recorded in Acts chapter 11. This is where we find ourselves as it matches up with our timeline. And you'll see this by the end of this section in verse 10. This is before his third trip to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, as recorded in Acts 15, where they made a final decision on this circumcision issue, which he doesn't mention anywhere in this letter. And so this suggests that he is speaking about his second visit to Jerusalem. And while he was there, because of a revelation from God, he would meet with the disciples in private. These are those who seemed to be influential. And there he presented the gospel to them. He did this to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. He wanted to make sure that everyone was on the same page when it came to preaching the gospel. But, whenever you seek to be faithful to the Lord, there's always a but. There is always a trial to overcome or something or someone who wants to get in the way. He says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, Yet because of false brothers brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Here we finally get to the problem. Jews and Gentiles have now come together as one in the church. There are not only ethnic differences between them, but also they had different religious pasts. The Jews are converting from Judaism to Christianity, while the Gentiles are converting from paganism, and in some cases Judaism, to Christianity. But these past identities are no longer to form a barrier between Jew and Gentile. At the cross, Christ has broken down this wall of hostility, as we find in Ephesians 2.14. So Titus, being a Greek, was not forced to be circumcised. What for? But imagine the Jews seeing Paul, a former Pharisee of Pharisees, with this uncircumcised Gentile. And on top of that, he doesn't make him get circumcised. It is like when Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. How did the Pharisees and scribes react? They grumbled. They grumbled. So of course you get these false brothers who we call the Judaizers, who probably profess faith in Christ, but they were only there to spy out their freedom in Christ. Uh, I know that over the centuries, this text has been used and misused to support freedom and liberty in the world and how we are not bound to man's laws that govern society. But that is not what this text is about. This is religious, not civil. Here Paul is speaking of Christian liberty and how Christ purchased us freedom from the law, that is the law of Moses, when he died on the cross. 
He fulfilled all the types and shadows of the old covenant under Moses. So now we are no longer bound to observe the ceremonial or civil laws of national Israel. That state has expired. We're no longer required to circumcise our boys on the eighth day because Christ and his cross is our circumcision. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant. And it signified either the cutting off of the body of sin or being cut off from the people of God, Israel. And Christ fulfilled both. On the cross, he was cut off from Israel so that he would cut off our body of sin, not his body of sin, because he had no sin. So now Paul is dealing with those who want to bring the Galatians back to the Mosaic law. And he says that they didn't submit to them, not even for a moment. Why? Because the freedom of the Christian was at stake. And so the truth of the gospel was at stake. He says that they resisted them so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you, both for the Galatians and for the church today. Believe it or not, as I've said before, there are so-called churches which celebrate Jewish holidays, such as Passover. And in these churches, they require their members to observe certain portions of the Mosaic law like the dietary laws or the laws about washings, whatever they may be. I believe this could be for a few reasons. I believe it could be due to some serious misinterpretation of how the Old and the New Testament relates. Or it could be the desire of the natural man to add works to salvation. Or it may be a reaction to the rise of anti-Semitism today, which the Christian should vehemently oppose. But that doesn't mean it's the right reaction. Unfortunately, this has been the pattern for the church. We tend to be very reactionary to what's happening in society and the culture, which can lead to some pretty bad decision-making. It either tends to be very unhelpful, unchristian, or just plainly unbiblical. Think of prohibition. I'm not at all promoting drunkenness. But the reaction from the church at that time was unbiblical. Yeah, but we had good motives. We had a sincere concern. But it was unbiblical. It doesn't make the action right. Now, this is a similar situation, though on a more serious note. It's a similar situation that is going on with Paul as the Judaizers wanted to bring the church back to the Mosaic law. It was in reaction to the integration of Jews and Gentiles in the church and all the problems that that might cause. But to force circumcision or any works of the law as the grounds of salvation, you're saved by faith and fill in the blank, would be the road back 
into slavery. The road back to Egypt. This was the road back to serving the flesh. It was the road back to living for this present evil age rather than the age to come. This is why it is so important to preserve the freedom of the gospel because the truth of the gospel is at stake. A lot of people probably say to themselves, why does it matter if they practice this in that church or that in this church? Well, because in practice, it is a denial of the gospel, which is a denial of the truthfulness of God. God says that the only way of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the Judaizers were saying, no, it's not. It's in defiance of God. I hope we see. It's no small thing. It's no small thing. It's not a small disagreement that the Judaizers had with Paul. It was in defiance of God. Secondly, in order to defend his own ministry against the false teachers and to prove that his gospel is the same and his authority is equal with the other apostles, he recounts what happened when he set the gospel before those who seemed to be influential. He says of the disciples, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. At first reading, this may sound arrogant, but it's not. He's not being arrogant. He is just saying, they are not more important than me, nor am I less important than they are when it comes to gospel ministry. They added nothing to me, which means they didn't appoint Paul to the ministry of the gospel, and they didn't add anything to his ministry of the gospel because it is not a different gospel. That's what he is saying. It was the same gospel given to him directly from the same Lord. So he says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, in verse 9, it says that they gave him the right hand of fellowship. All they did was recognize that he was preaching the same gospel. But what was it that they saw in Paul? Was it a glow in his eye? Or was it the same way when, as I say, we're reading and hearing the word of God, we're going to see something about this text? See, seeing could imply illumination. They perceived something about him, something eye-opening. So when they heard his gospel, they said to themselves, it is the same as ours. Later it says that they perceived the grace that was given to Paul. They saw that he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through Paul for his ministry to the uncircumcised. So what is he arguing here? Three things. First, he is arguing that he was not appointed by the other disciples. His commission did not depend on them. His commission came directly from Christ himself. He didn't receive the right hand of fellowship until probably more than 17 years after his conversion and calling. 
Second, he is saying that when he set the gospel before them, they confirmed that they both served the same Lord, and it is the same Lord who worked through Peter that worked through him. For what? Thirdly, to preach the gospel to the nations, to the uncircumcised. This was the Judaizers' biggest problem. But imagine you were in their shoes. Circumcision was commanded by the Lord. It was a mandatory covenant sign. The Lord warned that if any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, he has broken my covenant. The Jews would eventually be persecuted by other nations for being circumcised. Now, all of a sudden, Paul, who was once zealous for Judaism and the sign of circumcision, is saying, according to his version of the gospel, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. And they're saying to themselves, and this is from God? This can't be. Something has changed. Oh no. People can't do well with change. But there are changes in the covenant community from the old to the new. There are continuities and discontinuities between the old and new covenants. As our confession states that both the judicial and ceremonial laws have been abrogated or done away with, Christ has fulfilled them all. True Israel went from a nation made up of mostly Jews to now finding themselves in exile spread across many nations made up of both Jew and Gentile in the church. The church is not to be restricted to one nation or one ethnic group. This was the vision of the church since the beginning. It was never meant to be composed of one people group. The church, true Israel, is not plan B, as I've said before. It was plan A from the beginning with no backup plans. So since Paul and the other apostles served the same Lord, preaching the same gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, thirdly, he is in the same fellowship in building the final temple, which is the church. We're not waiting for the building of a third temple. We're not waiting for a third temple to be built in Jerusalem in this world. The church, the people of God, is the final construction of God's temple. This is the idea behind what Paul says next. He identifies the three apostles whom he presented the gospel to. These are those who seemed influential in the church. And they were influential. He is in no way taking away their status in the church. He says, And when James and Cephas, that is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Now, when we first read this, we're probably thinking of the modern idea of what a pillar is. Like, so-and-so is a pillar of their community. Although there is some truth to that, but there is much more to it than that here. 
This was not a popularity contest. They weren't running a local YMCA or homeless shelter. They weren't mayors of their towns or something like that. That's not what he means when he calls them pillars. The recipients of this letter, specifically the Jewish Christians, would have been familiar with the Greek Old Testament. And when he calls them pillars, their thoughts would have been drawn to the building of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 7, when Solomon cast pillars of bronze for the temple. So he is talking about the pillars of God's temple building. If Christ is the cornerstone which the builders have rejected, then these three apostles were the pillars of the new and final temple of God, the church. And this church is being built from the ground up, and beloved, you are part of God's temple building project. This is why Peter would later say in his letter, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, a living stone, the cornerstone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is why Paul would say to the Corinthians that their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, God's final dwelling place. It is not a physical building in present-day Jerusalem. But this is speaking of the new Jerusalem that is coming out of heaven from God. Revelation 21:22 says this, I saw no temple there, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And these three apostles are spoken of here as pillars of that temple. See, in this world, there's always a danger of making the building an idol. There's always a danger of making the physical building project an idol. Uh, having a church building is a blessing. We ought to pray that the Lord would give us wisdom, and that we would be good stewards of what he has given us. But once a building project divides a church, we know that the emphasis is on the wrong syllable. The building project that God is most concerned about is the building of his people. The church building is not the temple. The temple is God and the people of God. And this is what Paul and the other apostles were most concerned about. Paul and the apostles were real churchmen. They were most concerned with Christ's church. My question for you is, do you have that same concern? When you see your brothers or sisters going astray, do you have a heart to draw them back into the fold? It says, so when they perceived the grace that was given to Paul, James, Peter, and John gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and Paul. So notice that although he didn't receive his commission from the apostles, he was still to be received and acknowledged as an apostle, even though it took 17 years. He was never meant to be a gospel-preaching lone ranger in the mission field, planting churches on his own. The right hand of fellowship is an act of receiving someone into ministry. It is a way of saying, welcome as you join us in this ministry together. And they were given a charge. 
Paul and Barnabas received the right hand of fellowship that they should go to the Gentiles and the three apostles would go to the circumcised, that is the Jews. Only they asked Paul and Barnabas to remember the poor, the very thing that Paul was eager to do. Paul, who earlier said, it makes no difference who these apostles were, was now saying he submitted to them. So they sent him off with two objectives, to continue preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and for mercy ministry, specifically the poor Jewish Christians in Judea. And this is recorded in Acts eleven twenty-seven through 30. So what can we learn as a church from Paul's defense of his ministry and the gospel? First, we can learn that the gospel still needs defending even today. It still needs defending even today, especially for the next generation. And it is not just from outsiders, but even within the church, because it is our natural tendency to distort the pure gospel. The gospel that says your works, whatever they may be, cannot save you. The gospel that says that you are counted righteous in God's sight, not by anything that you have done, but based on what Christ has done on your behalf. You can't add anything to Christ's work. You are not saved by faith and something else. Because if we believe that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ and by law keeping of any sort, not just the ceremonial or civil laws, but also if we are saved by faith in keeping the moral law, the Ten Commandments, we are bound in slavery all over again. We would be bound for hell because the law of God demands perfect and complete obedience, which no man has accomplished except Jesus Christ. You can't be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments because you haven't kept them. Not a day in your life. Now this doesn't mean we don't do good works. That we don't seek to obey. We're saved to perform good works. We're not saved by our good works. And you're not saved by your sanctified works either. You're not saved because the Holy Spirit is working in you in sanctification. You're not justified because you're sanctified. Jesus doesn't give you the Holy Spirit to sanctify you and wait until you reach a certain level of holiness and say, aha, now you're righteous. Now I accept you. No. You were justified long before you performed any good work. You were declared righteous while you were full of sin because of Christ and what he did for you. By the way, you are still full of sin. So we ought to pray that the Lord would help us in our unbelief. Pray that the Lord would fill us with more faith in Christ and less faith in ourselves or in our good works. Because to be part of this 
temple building project. It is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not Christ and something else. Secondly, the gospel is to continue to go forth to the nations, that is, to all people of all backgrounds. There is always the danger of trying to make the church in our own image and to reflect what we want her to be rather than what God says she is to be. There is the danger for small churches especially to become insular, only concerned about herself while we neglect the mission field. The local church, especially for Presbyterians, have a responsibility to support other churches like in home and foreign missions. Because thirdly, through the preaching of the gospel, God is still building his church. Preaching is not in vain. In fact, preaching is necessary for the church to exist. One of the biggest shifts of focus after the Reformation was moving the focus from the altar to the pulpit. Everything we do is tied to the preaching of God's word. It is the foolishness of preaching the word of Christ that is the power and wisdom of God for calling both Jew and Gentile. So fourthly, this means that when you come to church on the Lord's day to listen to sermons, it is not in vain. In fact, sermons are necessary for the Christian life. Preaching and listening to sermons continue to build us up because you are God's building project. You may not be what you ought to be right now, but God has promised that he would complete this building project. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So let us continue to be diligent in the use of the means he has given us to grow us in our faith, in the preaching of the word, in sacrament as we will celebrate today, and in prayer. Let us pray.